violence is not inevitable. It can be stopped. We as individuals can do a huge amount to do that simply by talking to the young people that are around us. If you're a parent, if you're a sports coach, whatever you do, talking to young people is so, so important. And talking to them about this issue and particularly how they feel about this issue and checking in with them is so, so important. Welcome to Good On Purpose. This is a podcast for anyone searching for something more meaningful in their life and work. I'm Nilesha Chauvet, Managing Director of Good, a purpose-driven creative agency working with brands and charities to help make the world a better place. In each episode, I'll be speaking to people who've made a conscious and deliberate decision to give something back. People from all walks of life who represent a new generation of leaders changing and shaping the world today. Listen in as I dig deep to get to the very heart of the story they really want to tell, and most importantly, to understand why they're telling it now. Ben Kinsella was a teenager out celebrating the end of his GCSEs when he was brutally murdered in 2008. He was stabbed 11 times in five seconds by three men over an incident which he had nothing to do with. Three men were eventually brought to justice, but the lives of Ben's family and friends was changed forever. In this episode, I'm speaking to Patrick Green, the CEO of the Ben Kinsella Trust. It was set up by Ben's family after his death to continue Ben's legacy. Today, it's now one of the leading anti-knife crime charities in the UK, with a vision to help create a society where no family or community suffers at the hands of knife crime. This episode covers the sensitive topic of knife crime, of murder and violence against young adults and children. Patrick, thank you so much for speaking to us today. I'm so excited about exploring this issue with you. It's a pleasure. It's great to have the opportunity to talk to you. And yeah, we're looking forward to our conversation. So knife crime, it's an ugly stain on society in our communities, isn't it? And we often talk about it as if we really understand it. But I'm starting to question just how much we really do understand it, because it's an issue that's highly complex and nuanced. So could you tell us in your own words, what is the issue and why people, children, carry and kill with knives? That's a huge first question. It has taken us, you know, from the Bank Seller Trust, quite a number of years to look at this issue and realise what sits behind it. Initially, when we, we look at issues around knife crime and, and we see, you know, reports in the newspaper or, or see reports in, in the, the news or the media about knife crime, it appears as a law and order issue, which it is. It is about, you know, law being broken, to carry a knife, it's illegal. And the position most of us take at the beginning is, well, this is something that should be sorted out through enforcement, through policing, through the courts, that should offer a deterrent to stop this happening again. If that's done correctly, then like all issues of law and order, this should dissipate and it should disappear. In fact, what you realise when you look further into this issue is how deep a social issue it is. And in fact, the deterrent of law and order doesn't always work. And for many people, particularly young people who get caught up in knife crime and violence, is much about their circumstances and the social issues that surround them that 
draw them in to violence. You know, uh, as a society, it, uh, one of the challenges that we've got to acknowledge is that sometimes uh, rather than help our young, most vulnerable young people and draw them into positive activities, they get drawn the exact opposite way. So some of the measures that we have that we think, you know, are important in terms of law and order can often push young people in the wrong direction. Exclusions from school are, you know, a really good example about how some of our more vulnerable people just get lost and get pushed further and further away. And, you know, at the peripherals of this are gangs who are willing to exploit young people for financial gain. And we just seem to have a, you know, a revolving door when it comes to the courts and knife crime. And unfortunately, you know, it's 14 years since Ben was murdered. And, you know, every year we're seeing high numbers of young people being murdered right across the country. So do you think the issue is getting better? Is it getting worse? Or if progress is being made, but it's stagnant? It is, yeah, it, it is more the latter. Progress is being made than, than, uh, and um, stagnant than, you know, I think getting better or worse. It is oscillated and changed in certain areas. You know, it's a com- to explain the complexity of knife crime, if I'll use London as an example, it's, it's, it's the, you know, the big city in, in the UK and has the highest levels of knife crime. However, London is more recently, particularly since the pandemic, has seen knife offences fall. So that we're seeing less knife crime offences being recorded in London, which is a good thing. But in the same year, 2021, we saw the highest number of young people murdered in the capital. 27 of those, 90% of those, the 30 that were murdered, were murdered with a knife. So what we're seeing is maybe the issue getting in being less of an of a, uh, an issue in terms of knife carrying offences, but you know an increase in the ferocity of attacks with knife crime, and this is backed up by eminent criminologists such as uh, Professor Simon Harding at Middlesex University, who's done some studies, which show that gangs are becoming more violent or using violence as a way of expanding their territory, controlling young people who work for them and yeah, as, as a scare tactic. And it's backed up again by, by trauma surgeons who are saying they're seeing whether a decade ago they may have seen people arrive in with one or two stab wounds. It's now multiple stab wounds. So th- the issue is ever changing. And I think that's one of the, you know, the reasons why it still remains such a challenge today. So it's really interesting that you talk about other environmental factors having an influence? Because one of my questions was going to be, how do you think environmental factors might be exacerbating the problem? And by environment, I mean things like issues relating to specifically marginalised communities where gang culture might be prevalent, drug-related crime, the rising cost of living because we've come out of one crisis and we're going into another, and that's creating all sorts of problems, poverty, unemployment. There is so much, and as I say, this is so nuanced, How do you break it down? And what do you think are the main factors causing this issue? One of the factors has got poverty, deprivation and inequality. Because if you look at crime in general, crime affects, the disproportionately affects the poorer members of of our society more than it does the richer members of our society. And that's a fact since, you know, time immemorial. It it, it is deprivation indicates that you're a higher risk of being the victim of crime. And this too, for many of the young people, it's the young people I speak about most because that's what our our work is focused on. For many of those, you know, the opportunity of social mobility 
isn't there. They don't see opportunities to move out of the environments that they, they grow up in. And it's more difficult for them sometimes to move socially. You know, they, they may not have the networks that middle class and upper class people have in terms of, you know, connections and, and you know, helping you with your career. It's not to say that, you know, these barriers can't be overcome, but for some young people, it's far more difficult. It is far more difficult for them to move through those barriers. And, you know, I mentioned it before, but, but gangs are, are particularly good at spotting vulnerable young people, particularly good at offering them, you know, what they would see as a way to earn money and a way to, way to gain status. And, you know, they work on the, they exploit young people, but none of the people young people initially realize they're being exploited. They think they're doing very well out of the relationship initially. And it's only when they're in too deep that they, they suddenly realize there's no way out of this. So we create the factors some for gangs to operate and operate effectively with some of our most, most vulnerable young people. It's not helped sometimes by young people when they're excluded from school. That's, you know, it, it, that is another way of just, you know, children are, are generally safer in school. It's another way of increasing the vulnerabilities around them. I mean, there are some very good alternative provision schools in place, but still we can't ignore the fact that many of those young people who are excluded end up being drawn into gangs and being exploited there too. We also have the role of social media and the role that that plays in normalizing violence, in accelerating violence really, really quickly between young people. And, you know, that is still a fairly unregulated space. And one which, you know, if young people are watching content which is displaying violence on a regular level, they're getting negative messages about how they should, what they should do to stay safe. Okay, so let's talk about Ben, because I know that it was really important for the Trust to truly reflect Ben's legacy. And I was amazed to learn that a few months before he was murdered, Ben wrote a letter to our former Prime Minister, Gordon Brown, to call on the government to do more to tackle knife crime. If Ben was alive today, he would be 31. What do you think he would say about the state of knife crime in the UK? And what would be his ask to government? Perhaps you can tell us about Ben's story. Ben, when he was murdered, was a 16-year-old schoolboy from North London. A very normal teenager. I think that's how his family would, would describe him. Although he was doing particularly well in school, he, he was um, on course to get A-stars in his GCSEs. Uh, although, unfortunately, he wasn't alive to, to open the envelope when it arrived. Ben was really conscious about social inequality. As you rightly say, he, he, he challenged the Prime Minister, the then Prime Minister Gordon Brown in terms of what he felt was the lack of protection given to young people, particularly in relation to youth violence. And, you know, he, in school he was an anti-bullying mentor. This was something that was close to his heart. It's hard to know what Ben where Ben would have ended up. He was a very talented artist and wanted to be a graphic designer. But I think he probably would have continued to campaign on this issue for, you know, even now. And I think I would hope that in the work that we're doing in the Ben Kinsella Trust, you know, carrying on his legacy, I would hope that this is what he would have wanted to do is, is to work with young people on a preventative level, at a very early level. Often, you know, when we intervene with young people, we're intervening because their behaviour has brought them to our attention or they're drifting into criminality and we do an awful lot of great work to get them back to where they want to be. What we do is we believe, you know, why wait for you to make a mistake before we notice you and to have those really in-depth preventative conversations to, to help you understand, you know, the, the link between choice and consequences, make good decisions and, and basically stop you making a poor decision in the first place. 
It's interesting, isn't it? Because when I hear you speak about this, it feels like this is very much a young person's issue. And that's probably why you're focusing much more on prevention. And the role of mentorship, and as you say, Ben Ben was a mentor himself. How much does mentorship play a role in some of the work that you do? Yeah, it's incredibly important. And I think if I've widened it, not just from the work of the Bank of Seller Trust, but the work that many other fantastic charities do in this space, mentoring is a hugely important part of helping young people on their pathway through the teenage years into adulthood and to make uh, good decisions. Mentoring comes in many forms. It comes in forms, you know, we often talk about teaching and the powerful effect that teachers can have, but also outside the educational sector. So sports coaches, uh, whether it's boxing, football, the arts, music, these give young people an opportunity to do something that they're good at and get a lot of self-respect from, but also that they can learn from positive role models in their lives about making life choices. And they can observe those people in the course of their daily life and the decisions they make and how they handle difficult situations. For some young people, that may not reflect their home life. And it it may be one of the few positive role models they have around them. Mentoring changes people's lives, particularly young people's lives. And it's hugely, hugely important. It is one of the areas that has suffered mostly in the austerity cuts over the last 10 years. You know, it's often talked about youth services, a lot of youth services and mentoring. A lot of those positive role models, you know, have been taken away from many, many young people. And I think the challenge with mentoring is, and youth services are, you don't miss them till they're gone. It's only when they're gone that you realise, why have we got so many young people walking around looking like they've nothing to do? They provide a huge, huge preventative factor. And you talk to anybody who's turned their life around, they will usually mention somebody who at some point reached out to them, understood them in a way that nobody else had done and helped them overcome some really, really difficult decisions and change their life. And, you know, mentoring is key in terms of tackling this issue. How do you spot the signs before it's too late, before kids get drawn into things like gangs, for example? By having a conversation, it sounds incredibly simple, and it is. It is about testing young people in terms of their decision-making and their self-identity, certainly how they feel, where they feel safe, what they do in situations, and what they might do in in situations to keep themselves safe. We do it obviously by checking, you know, is there any situation that you think a knife will protect you in? You know, those kind of questions to draw out what what young people are thinking. We've a a load of resources on our website, www.bankconsella.org.uk that are free to download for parents, youth workers, and indeed young people to look at this issue. But it is about having conversations. It is about understanding the link between how young people is thinking their perceptions and what their likely behaviour is and then helping modify their response to help them make better choices and just open their field of vision. So they they sometimes feel they've only got one choice, only one possible choice in this situation. Opening the field of vision to help them realise I have a number of options here and I was probably going to pick the least best one for myself. I've got other ones that I I can use to to help me uh, stay safe. So let's talk about the immersive educational experience that you've created, because it's such a big part, isn't it, of what you do, teaching children through an exhibition which is in one place, but presumably travels in in some form. How do children react going through the educational journey and when they learn about Ben's story? Yeah, I mean, when we set up as a charity, as I said, you know, we didn't initially know 
what we wanted to do. We knew we wanted to do something. Set up by a family who we just wanted to do something to stop what happened to them, happen to any other family. We didn't, as a, as a new charity, just want to come in and copy what somebody else was doing in terms of tackling knife crime. That felt defeatist. It felt as if we would just be competing with, uh, with other fantastic charities for a, for a small amount of funding and, and you know, lowering the bar instead of raising the bar. So when we looked at interventions that were taking place away from knife crime, there was an obvious missing link for us because we saw a lot of great innovation in terms of other crime types that wasn't being applied to, to knife crime, particularly around prevention. Uh, prevention messages for on knife crime were generally done by, you know, the example would be assemblies in school where someone would talk to young people about knife crime and the dangers of knife crime. And that seemed to be the standard model across the country. It was a very good model, and particularly when delivered by people with lived experience of knife crime, but it was the only way it was being done. And so we thought, well, is there a way that we can complement that great work by, by adding to it? And when we looked at exhibitions and the power that they have, and particularly from an educational uh, setting, we learn differently in um, exhibitions. We walk around, we're, we're moving and learning. We have the time to you know, consume the materials at our own pace and it gives us the opportunity to bring the emotion and the empathy into the learning which possibly you can't it's more difficult to do in terms of delivering lessons face to face there are permanent spaces one in islington one in barking in east london another in nottingham and these help young people go by traveling through a series of rooms based on choices and consequence to understand what knife crime actually is and knife crime is the pain, suffering, trauma, bereavement, and never-ending loss that uh, it leaves in its wake. And it's only when you understand that that you realize, wow, that is what I'm, if I carry a knife, that's possibly what I'm about to bring down on myself or someone else, you know, and that is not worth it. And we see young people change attitudes and behaviors very, very quickly as they travel through the exhibition. Uh, and we see a big difference between what they're telling us at the beginning and, and what they tell us when they leave. And I think that works brilliantly then with, with the work that schools are doing in terms of the lesson plans, because it gives a narrative and an experience that young people can identify with. So let's talk about the role of media and in particular social media, because kids are living on social channels, aren't they? It's so important for them. Do you think the media is doing enough to raise awareness of this issue of knife crime and importantly, the right solutions? Do you think popular culture and social media channels in some way glamorizes and legitimizes knife crime? Social media plays a massive role um, in knife crime. And I don't think they've done anything near enough to tackle this issue. Their platforms are being misused, I would say, to promote content which escalates violence, which accelerates violence, and which uh, leads to bullying and targeting of young people and has been used by gangs to groom young people. And I, I think when we look at the fact that the government has had to go to legislation and bring in the online harms bill, that says a lot about the fact that social media companies have just been, have just not self-regulated in any way and have not been active in protecting young people. It's a huge issue because, as you say, social media and your ide online identity for this generation is huge. We not only buy food, buy clothes, we date online. You know, who we are is, is, is hugely important. 
So when that identity is challenged on social media, young people feel they have to defend it and it isn't something they can ignore. And it just seems to spiral out of control so, so quickly. You only have to sit in, in, in any of the, in the courtrooms when cases of knife crime are now being discussed. There's barely a case goes by where social media isn't mentioned as an accelerator of what happened. It's so fascinating, isn't it? Because social media platforms, as you say, do have a tremendous responsibility to our children. Do you think they need to work harder to curate more responsible content? Do you think legislation needs to work harder to hold them accountable? As I said, I think the fact that we've got to go to legislation shows failure because the people who who can resolve this most effectively are the social media companies. If they can make our life so much easier, you know, if they can allow us to work from home, if they can allow us to have, you know, our groceries delivered, if if all the great benefits that um, social media has, has come up with, the fact that they've just turned a blind eye to what's happening on their platforms in terms of violence, I can't find the words to describe it. Absolutely. I mean, they have tremendous power and they have tremendous influence with young children. Absolutely. So my next question is, how does the Ben Kinsella Trust work in collaboration, if at all, with the police? We work with a number of organisations, yes. For us, it is about, as I say, it's a preventative programme. So it's about helping, just helping to stop you making mistakes before you do that. So, and, you know, we We've worked with the police in terms of positive messaging around, you know, knife disposals, knife searches, and getting messages into schools alongside schools' offices and helping to get the message out about, you know, breaking the, the myths that many young people have about, you know, a knife will protect you, there's a safe place to stab someone, just helping break down those myths that, that exist out there that are totally false. So, yes, in terms of education, we've worked alongside a number of police officers and police forces in terms of getting that message out there. What's been the reaction of teachers and educational providers of the uh, work that you do? Uh, It's been phenomenal. We're very grateful to the teachers and educators for their support. We've never had the budget or money to advertise the the exhibition out to schools in any great form. And the success of the exhibition has really relied on word of mouth, one teacher recommending it to another, recommending it to another. And it's been fantastic. And I think, uh, you know, we... Teachers talk about feedback to us about young people coming back from the exhibition, but being more attentive in school and seeing less fights in the playground because the messaging they're getting from us is about, you know, positive choices. If you want to achieve something, you're going to have to make positive choices to be who you want to be and recognising that that extends to many other things, not just carrying a knife, but, you know, how you apply yourself in, in school and how you, you, know, you apply yourself to achieving your goals. Is knife crime on the rise most in the east of England? And if that's the case, why do you think that is? Statistically, it is. Uh, At the moment, they've seen a a huge growth over the last 10 years. If we look at, and we do spend a lot of time analysing the the data that comes through, uh, both from the Ministry of Justice and from the Office of National Statistics on knife crime, to try and get an understanding of what's happening. What we've seen more recently, probably in in the last five years, is a knife crime is going quicker outside the bigger cities than anywhere else. So our vision of knife crime is often it's, it's something, it's a big city problem. That's changing. Knife crime is in small towns, in market towns across the country. Knife crime is suddenly emerging. And I think, you know, what we're seeing in the east of England and what we're seeing in other parts of the, of the country is 
much quicker growth in terms of knife crime. It's difficult to give you a definitive answer as to why that would be. There's a lot of talk about county lines, that is gangs working from big cities, using young people, transporting them out to smaller towns to sell drugs. And where there's drugs being sold, there's knives being used to protect territory or to win territory as well. So that is probably one of the reasons why we're seeing that rise. But also we can't discount the fact that as children become more fearful about violence, they tend to think carrying a knife will protect them. It's one of the biggest you know, reasons young people give us for carrying knives is that they do it out of fear. So if we were to explore the highly sensitive and thorny issue of race, because it is a question that many of our listeners might be asking, are there more black males that are victims and perpetrators of knife crime? And if so, why is that? And, and should we be looking at a more culturally nuanced intervention and education to really resonate more meaningfully to these communities and, and to help solve this problem? What we see is, yes, in London, more young black men, young people from minority backgrounds are victims of knife crime. There's no getting away from that. Outside London, the picture is, is different. Predominantly, it appears to be more white young people who become victims. So it's a mixed picture. I mean, for those people who've studied this in, in some detail, generally the, the response comes back. This goes back to poverty, deprivation and class as much as it does to race. And the fact that many of our minority communities are less wealthy or in poorer areas, that has to be a factor, maybe not the factor, but a factor in this as well. There's no question about racism and inequality being a factor as well. The point you make about uh, schooling and the educational system is a really good one. And I think that definitely we need to look at that. It is an issue where, yeah, disproportionately minority communities are affected by this far more than white communities. But it's, it's not the full truth. You've, it's a difficult issue to delve into. Interesting, The Guardian with Gary Young, their editor-in-chief, did a piece in 2017. He wrote, the, wrote up the obligatories of all 47 teenagers who were murdered that year. Because when we come to the, uh, talk to the media, some young people's uh, murder will get lots of publicity, some gets little or nothing. And I think and to understand the, the problem and the issue correctly, you have to find out why, these, why all these murders happened. Um, and if you look at those murders and you look at those 47 teenagers, there is a big difference between all those. What, what we tend to get reported in the media is exactly this. It's a, a, a young, predominantly black boys issue. But if you look at the 47 young people who died in, in 2017, it gives you a very, very different picture. And this drives us back to where we started in the podcast about, you know, talking about the complexity and the different drivers around life crime. And that is reflected in the young people who die every year in this country. They're not all coming from the same place or background. There is a big difference between all those young people. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because you've just debunked a myth that I think the media keeps perpetuating that this is a racial issue, it's a black male issue, and it's not. It's much more nuanced, as you say. So thank you for clarifying that for us. Do you think it is the case, as is often the accusation, that white victims of knife crime and crime generally get more press attention? And what can we do to ensure a more balanced narrative and coverage? Yes, it's quite probable that that is the case in terms of how 
white young people compared to black young people are represented in the media. There's no getting away, away from that. It's not that all black young people who are murdered get negative press. You know, we don't think these Stephen Lawrence and Damalola Taylor to know that, you know, there are exceptions of that. But as a generalisation, yes, there definitely appears to be a bias. So what can we do to ensure a more balanced narrative and coverage? It, it plays back to, you know, how news is reported. And, you know, we know that the media is, is a mirror of society. We keep, or I keep going back to the same point on this. It just draws me right back to, if you really understand the problem, then you wouldn't be reporting on it the way that we're reporting on it. So we often report often as if it's a much more simple problem. It's a law and order issue. And, you know, in some cases in the press, it is an issue which is predominant in minority communities. You know, neither of those are, are completely true. And until you understand the, what is actually happening and what the real drivers are, I don't think we're going to get a fair reflection of what the real problem is through the media. And unfortunately, that then drives, I think, political thinking around what the solutions may be. If there's one thing you'd like us all to remember about this conversation, what might that be? Violence is not inevitable. It can be stopped. We, as individuals, can do a huge amount to do that simply by talking to the young people that are around us. If you're a parent, if you're a sports coach, whatever you do, Talking to young people is so, so important and talking to them about this issue and particularly how they feel about this issue and checking in with them is so, so important. Children, you know, will tell adults they trust a lot. So it's important that we ask them the questions so that we ensure that they're thinking and that they're, you know, they're keeping themselves safe and that they understand what, how to keep themselves safe and, and how to look after one another. That would be the takeaway I would, I would, would hope that uh, this conversation might invoke in some people. Patrick, thank you so much for this important, good, on-purpose conversation. Thank you, Lucia. Thank you. If you've been affected by a crime relating to any of the topics in this episode and you'd like to learn more, you can contact the Ben Kinsella Trust at www.benkinsella.org.uk. Thank you for listening to Good On Purpose. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to tune in for more, don't forget to hit subscribe before you leave. We'd love to hear your feedback and your suggestions for future episodes and guests. And you can do that either by getting in touch by email, hello at goodagency.co.uk, or you can find out more on our website, which is www.goodagency.co.uk. Thanks again for tuning in and hope you can join us next time.